The purpose is, what do you base your identity on? What actually do you root yourself in? And as we grow more and more disconnected from face-to-face communities where we don't go talk to one another, and as God and faith no longer plays a significant role in people's identity, those identities have become very fragile. Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to one of our weekly messages. We hope that these messages bring you closer to Jesus, strengthen your faith, and deepen your understanding about the Bible. If you're thinking of attending ACC, we're currently holding one service at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can visit our website for more information. That's anacortischristian.church. That's A-N-A-C-O-R-T-E-S Christian.church. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or if you'd like to get in contact with us, we would love to hear from you. So, whether you're sitting, driving, or exercising, thanks for tuning in. Let's dive into the Bible together. Well, good morning. Good to see you all this morning. False perceptions, misunderstandings, misconceptions, Sometimes we get a signal from someone, lack of eye contact or something they say is off, and we have intuition um, about, you know, that person. And oftentimes that intuition is right. I find that um, my wife's intuition is way more heightened than my own about people usually. You know, if there's like an event or we're with people and and she says, did you notice that, you know, so-and-so was avoiding eye contact or did you notice that like something seemed off with this guy over here or whatever? And I'm like, yeah, totally. Yeah, you know. (laughs) Usually no. (laughs) Usually I'm like, well, I don't know, you know. Uh, Oftentimes those intuitions are right and the question is what do you do with that? Do you pursue that? Do you go to that person? Do you, do you go, you know, what's going on? Um, is there something to this? But sometimes they're wrong. And sometimes they're wrong. And if we don't address it properly, the consequences can be pretty devastating. And that's kind of what our story is about today. We're going to look at Joshua chapter 22 And if you've been with us going through the book of Joshua, you might notice that we last ended on the end of chapter 11. And so you might go like, whoa, we're skipping a whole bunch here. And and part of that is for time. Part of that is that, part of the reason for that is that this is like 10 chapters, mostly comprised of lists. Lists of boundaries, lists of tribes, tribal names. Um, There are some important things that happen, but what's going on here is um, the conquest is over and Israel is finally settling in the promised land. And so they're going through painstaking detail to show exactly how they divided up the land for all the tribes and clans of Israel. Now, that's very boring to read, but there are some important things that happen it makes note several times of some of the lands that were not conquered, that were supposed to be, some of the people who were not driven out, who were supposed to be, and that kind of hints at future hazards for the nation of Israel. 
But most importantly, if you were an Israelite, this would be something of a treasure for you because this is God answering the promise that he gave to Abraham hundreds of years before to give his descendants a nation, a land for their own. And so here it is. And they're dividing it up and they're settling in. God is fulfilling this promise. It's a big deal. And part of the reason that's a big deal that's going to probably maybe set the tone for this passage today is that this promise that God gave to Abraham is in response to what happened at the Tower of Babel and the nations. At the Tower of Babel, the nations came together and in a revolt against God said, let's build a tower to the heavens and let's make a name for ourselves. And so in a sense, God gave them over to their desire for a name and power, and he gave them over. And Deuteronomy 32 says that at the scattering of the nations, God allotted the nations according to the number of the sons of God, or the heavenly host. So all the nations are given over to serve other gods, lower G gods, and, and this is kind of where the world stands. And out of that mess, God chooses one man, says, I'm going to make a nation through you that's my own. You're going to bear my name instead of a name for yourself, and through you, I'm going to bring all the nations back. I'm going to bring them all back into unity and bring them back under, under myself and bring healing to the world. So this is why Israelite unity and fidelity to God is so important, because if Israel fractures, if they divide, they start to look like the nations. So the big question is, what makes Israel Israel? What defines the people of God? And even somewhat to fast forward today, who are really the Christians? You know, who, what makes a person a follower of God? What unites us? And equally as important, what divides us? And of course, this isn't a story given to answer that question in totality, but we're going to get a window into some of the things underneath in this case, the Israelite identity is very much connected to the land. And this is a big deal right now, right? It's a big event in their life. This is a formative part of their identity. They're being given the land that God promised. And so to be Israel is to be a recipient of that promise and to receive that land, right? All that land is being allotted to the tribes. And then we come back down to the very last two and a half tribes that haven't been named. This is the Reubenites, the Gadites, and this half-tribe of Manasseh. Now, if you've been with us through all of Joshua, you'll remember their backstory a little bit, perhaps, from Joshua chapter 3. Because here's why these guys are kind of not quite in and not out. There's a backstory. Before Israel crossed the Jordan to take possession of the promised land, they defeated some of the Amorite kings east of the Jordan, and these two and a half tribes said to Moses, hey, this land's pretty good. What, if, what do you say about like, our tribes just taking this land as an inheritance instead of crossing over the Jordan and taking what's west of the Jordan, the, Can the land of Canaan? And at first, Moses is like, no, what are you doing? You're going to abandon your brothers and leave them to fight on their own. No, we, this is not okay. And they said, no, no, you don't understand. We promise that we will stand by our brothers and sisters. We are one nation, and we will stay with you until the end. 
Until everything is done, then you can dismiss us and we'll go back to our homeland east of the Jordan. So that's what's happening now. So Joshua chapter 22 starts with, At that time Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and you have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days, I think it was like seven years, uh, down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan." And then he goes on to give them a charge. He says, only remember this, to, re- to obey the commands that Moses gave you. And that looks like four things. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments. And serve or worship him with all of your heart and with all your soul. Love the Lord your God. Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments and serve, worship him with all your heart and with all your soul. And I would argue that that is the essence of what it means to be an Israelite. So if they continue to do that, great. They've been faithful. They've not forsaken their brothers. Um, They depart on good terms and they go home with lots of plunder. Everything's good. Verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gab and the half-tribe of Manasseh. I want you to just notice how they don't call them the Israelite tribes to the east. They name them by the tribes. Return home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. Now, a quick note here, a very important chapter that we skipped over was 18, where it talks about Shiloh. This is the place in fulfillment of Scripture in Deuteronomy, where God instructed them to set up the tabernacle and the altar where they would worship Him, this Shiloh, this place, therefore, becomes the epicenter of Israelite identity in the land of Canaan. All right? Gilead, apparently, by the narrator's words, is not part of that land. They left the people of Israel at Shiloh. They went to their own land. What divides them? In this case, the Jordan River. But as we'll see, the Jordan represents more than just a river. And you'll see why that's important. But already the narrator is starting to reference the two and a half tribes as a people distinct from Israel. And there's this relational tension happening here. Let's keep going. Verse 10. When they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. They meant for people to see it. Okay. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gab and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, 
the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. What? <laughs> Whoa. Like night and day shift. All of a sudden, we're, we're real good. You guys have been great. You've been faithful. You've been wonderful. And now they build an altar, and we're going to get everyone together and go kill them. Um, what? You know, we're, we're kind of like, what, what's the big deal? We don't really probably put ourselves in this context. We don't understand. So what's the problem? I think there's more to it that we would have to experience to really get it. But um, in Deuteronomy 12, God had commanded that when they go into the land, they're to tear down and destroy all the places of worship and all the altars where other gods have been worshipped. And then he says, Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Now, name is more than just a name. It constitutes an identity, okay, and a presence. To make his name dwell there, there you will bring all the offerings, the burnt offerings, the sacrifices, and everything that I'll command you. So the command is the they are not to worship the Lord at any other altar other than at Shiloh, where God chose and where he put his name to dwell. The name of the Lord dwells there at the tabernacle. They're specifically not supposed to worship at any other altar. So the people who bear Yahweh's name, you're a people who are to bear my name, are to worship him where his name dwells on the west side of the Jordan. So if these other two and a half tribes live on the east side of the Jordan, are they still Israelites? Notice how it said the whole assembly of the people of Israel, apparently not including those guys, assembled to make war against the Transjordan tribes. The point is, the narrator in the Western tribes clearly view this as the true Israel, defined by those who dwell west of the Jordan versus the two and a half tribes to the east. So are these outsiders, are these outcasts, trying to set up their own national identity in response? Are they trying to make a name for themselves by setting up another altar, a name that would dwell there, that they would worship, like the nations at the Tower of Babel? Interestingly, though, when it says that the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them, that's an echo of the words that were used to talk about how the Canaanites all gathered together to make war against Israel. So in a very subtle way, it's almost like the author's saying the nation of Israel responded to their brothers in what they perceived, probably falsely, to be happening, and they started acting like Canaanites. So, we have an observation, a perception. They built an altar. We have our perception. This is a rival altar. It's a, com it's a competing identity with Israel. After all, what else could it be for? What's left to do but go and wipe them out? And I'm sure there's more to it than that. What do we do when we have a perception? Oftentimes we see and we go, they're doing this, Therefore, their motives are, and we assign motives, right? We come to a conclusion, and then we act accordingly. Hold on a second. Do the smart thing, the thing that takes courage. Go talk to them. Go talk to them first. 
And that's what Israel does. Because sometimes, not all the time, our perceptions are wrong. So Israel sends a delegation led by Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. Maybe it's a good idea. All right, verse, 20, verse 16. Um, and they go and they talk, open a conversation. He says, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Talk about assigning motives, right? We have not had enough, ha, have we not had enough of the sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take your possession, take for yourself a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerek, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. All right, so you know, break this down a little bit. There's kind of three accusations here. One is there's a breach of faith compared to what Achan did. Remember Achan, how he snuck some of the devoted things and the whole congregation of Israel suffered for it. Two, they're, they're accusing them of apostasy or turning away from the Lord. In fact, that word turning away is the same word as repent, to turn in Hebrew, only they're turning the other way, right? They're turning to something else. And three, they're rebelling against the Lord, like at Peor. In fact, this guy Phineas, who's talking, was personally at Peor in the book of Numbers when the Israelites were seduced to go after the gods of their neighbors and the women of their neighbors. And there's an episode where the plague is taking hold of the, the nation and they're all weeping and praying before the temple. And this arrogant Israelite goes marching right across all these people weeping in prayer with this Midianite woman under his arm and takes her right into his tent to go do what you can imagine. So this guy Phineas, zealous for the Lord, gets up, opens the door to the tent and hucks a spear right through this guy and into the woman who's underneath him. This is the Bible. It's pretty graphic sometimes. Um, and God sees that his zeal for his people and his name reflects his own zeal, and he, the plague ceases at that point. So, Phineas has a zeal for the Lord here. But he's also nervous about the consequences. If you do this, the Lord will be angry with all of us. So there's a fear behind it, motivating it. And what's the proposed solution? Cross over. Cross over the Jordan. Pass over into the Lord's land. And notice earlier in verse 9, the narrator says that they possess the land of Gilead, east of the Jordan, by command of the Lord to Moses. Right? So, but they are being generous. They're offering to give a possession 
with Israel on the west side, even after the land has been divided up and given. Look, we will give of ourselves to have you come and join us. Just don't do this. Right? I mean, that's pretty cool. All right, I want to continue one more big chunk here. Verse 29, here's their response. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, and in the original language it's more like God of gods, Yahweh, God of gods, Yahweh. He knows, and let Israel itself know. They talk a whole lot about how they think they know. Well, you don't know, right? If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings and grain offerings, basically to break the commandment in Deuteronomy 12, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and the people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in the time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said, of a, uh, said to us or to our descendants in the time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, and sacrifice, other than the altar that the Lord, uh, altar of the Lord that stands before his tabernacle. Oh, I, I guess it's a good thing we decided to talk before slaughtering all you guys. <laughs> so they find this answer to be pleasing. They depart in good faith. The altar stands. But underneath this, there, underneath this misunderstanding, this false perception, what does it reveal about the people? First of all, we see that both sides are motivated by fear. And that fear is connected with their identity because their identity, they perceive, is under threat by the other party. And that's what happens. When that which we root our identity in is threatened by someone else or even their views, we get fearful. Something is shaking in our world. For Israel, that fear is that the tribes east of the Jordan will pollute the nation and God will regard all of them as rebels. For the other side, the Reubenites, the Gadites, the half-tribe of Manasseh, it's fear that the tribes west of the Jordan will exclude them from belonging to the people of Israel, which it seems like they're already starting to do. And the dividing line between them is the Jordan. 
But what's the Jordan? One of my commentaries says, crossing the Jordan is the constitutive event like, like our revolutionary war for the formation of the Israelite nation. An event that transforms Israel from a nomadic people to a landed nation. When Israel began the conquest, the Jordan was the site of national unification. Now that the nation has received its promised rest, the Jordan divides the nation. The delegation insinuates that the crossing over which shaped national identity on that occasion is to be viewed in light of those who have crossed over to stay. For the ten and a half tribes, the possession of Canaan thus constitutes the essence of of Israelite identity. So think about it. You go through this grand event. God parts the waters of the Jordan. You come across as one people. You set up an altar of stones representing that God has taken you out of the waters and established you as a people. This is an identity-forming moment. It's a unifying moment, and everyone rallies around it. And now, as they're setting up a place to live on that side of the Jordan, those who live on the other side are going back over, are not sharing in that identity, in that national unity, right? Because this is the land that we fought for. We are the true Israel. In truth, while the land of Canaan was to be the promised land, what actually defines the people? What defines the people? Love the Lord your God, walk in His ways, keep His commandments, and worship Him with your whole heart and your soul. So my question for us today is, what's your Jordan? What is your crossing over event Maybe it's your greatest accomplishment. I graduated. We graduated. We did it. We're here. You know, we, are, we have arrived on the other side, right? Is it not easy to turn that unifying event into the very thing that sets you apart from other believers? Everyone in our small group has graduated. Everyone in our small group has kids. You know, we're the ones who have children. They don't have children. We understand. They don't understand, right? Our small group is mixed in that regard, which, I'm, which is awesome. It's great. Think about every reformation or counter-reformation or denomination We've arrived. We've crossed over. We've won the battle. We're the true Christians, right? Or those who were delivered through some kind of addiction, alcohol, drugs, pornography, whatever, they've been set free. We've arrived, right? And there are those who haven't. There's those who made the team and those who didn't. And my observation here is that the fear is if our identities are not rooted in the same crossing over stories, then we're not safe. And the question is, are we rooting those identities in the right things? The right Jordan River event. Tim Keller wrote a book review about a book that was written about the effects of social media on our culture. 
And the premise of the book is that social media, Twitter, Facebook, and so on, they appear to be and they mask themselves as a place where you can have a civil discourse over ideas, okay? But in reality, this is not the case. If you try to convince someone that their views are wrong, you will almost never succeed. Because for many people, social media has become a place where they are curating a self, he says. And therefore, they see opposing views as attacks on their identity. So think about that for a while. Some of you came in with a mask today. Some of you didn't. Perceptions. Oh, you must be a sheep. You've bought in, right? You're on this side of the political spectrum, and um, meanwhile, I've crossed over. I know. I have the right information, right? Um, you've been vaccinated. Some people haven't been vaccinated. All over social media, people have their badges up, making sure everyone knows they've been vaccinated. Maybe that's an encouragement to go do what they see as the right thing and keep people safe. Sometimes I think it's what you call virtue signaling, right? I've crossed over. I'm one of the people. I matter. I'm valuable. And that goes the same holds true for someone arguing from the other side. We hear from the polar extremes the most, whether we're talking about social media or just our culture today at large, because everything we root our identity in, all of our coming out stories, all of our crossing over stories that identify us with various groups, whether it's, you know, what, you know pick your, your acronyms, BLM, LGBTQ, um, you know, even religion in some cases. Like we all have groups that we glom ourselves onto because we identify with a crossing over story that makes me feel welcome and now I have an identity. Now I'm rooted in something, right? My critique here right now isn't the ideology of these groups, it's what makes an identity. I can critique those groups too. I could do up and down all over the place and we can really get into it if we wanted. That's not my purpose here is what I'm saying. The purpose is what do you base your identity on? What actually do you root yourself in? Because all those things are shaky. And as we grow more and more disconnected from face-to-face -face communities where we don't go talk to one another, and as God and faith no longer plays a significant role in people's identity, those identities have become very fragile. So any disagreement with my view is an attack on me. You're never going to convince me because I don't care what you say. You're attacking me, and I'm going to defend myself. A quote from the article says, Social media is not primarily a place of public discussion of ideas. The ideas are ways to define oneself and signal belonging to a group, as well as to assign identities to others by associating them with groups you oppose. Those who have crossed over, those who haven't. This is the reason social media has perfected the art of bad faith readings, interpreting a person's words in the most uncharitable sense possible. Sounds kind of like our story, 
right? Interpreting perceptions falsely because right now our identity is very much connected with this Jordan River. And now it's time to go to war. There is no effort to understand the argument in its strongest form and respond to it. Rather, the goal is to associate the thinker with shameful outgroups. The public discussion of social media is a means to end the identity is, is a means to the end of identity formation, status seeking, and social bonding in a culture that has eroded older ways of accomplishing those functions. The identities we form are not safe. They're built on sand. We curate a self for the purpose of finding approval, setting truth or discourse aside and blasting the other side, meanwhile getting blasted in return. So how did these people avert disaster? They sent a delegation. Talk face to face. Listen carefully. Are you humble enough to admit that you were wrong in your misconceptions? What if this had gone full-blown and they simply would not hear? No, we don't believe you. It's an altar. What else would you want an altar for? You know, to say it's just a copy of the altar? It's just a memorial, a witness? Yeah, right. We know better. You're done. We're going to take you out, right? Or have you rooted your own purpose in your vendetta, your mission that you can't even see outside of your own constructed story, your own narrative? Remember the Princess Bride? Very famous line at the end where Inigo is sitting there at the windowsill before he drops out of it onto a horse. And uh, he says, you know, it's very strange. I've been in the revenge business so long now that it's over, I have no idea what to do with the rest of my life. So many of today's socio-political crusades operate on the assumption that they are on a war path, a war path against hate, a war path for revenge, a war path of some kind. But if our perceptions are wrong, the crusade goes away. And if I root my identity in the crusade, I go away. What am I going to live for? What do I have? And when you don't quantify what hate looks like or who is perpetuating it and what the actual situation is, you form your own story, your own narrative, and then you actually require your perceived enemy to hate you. Because if they don't hate you, your purpose falls apart. So does your identity. Therefore, we can't accept truth because that would mean I don't have a mission anymore. How are the Israelites, why are they able to avert war? Because their identity was ultimately rooted in more than being in or being right. I want you to notice that the primary goal for both parties isn't even so much reconciliation. Like, look, we want you to come over. We'll even sacrifice if you come over. The main thing is the holiness of God. If you're not going to do that, there's no compromise. If, if that's actually what's happening here. 
They will not accept fellow Israelites worshiping at a rival altar. And both sides agree on that. They will even give of themselves to uphold the true worship of the true God. They will surrender some of their inheritance if it means maintaining fidelity with God and his people, as his people. And notice that reconciliation happens because both parties are committed to the same non-negotiables. There are a lot of negotiables. And if we're talking outside of believers, outside of the church, then living in a pluralistic society, there are a lot of negotiables. But notice what they don't compromise. They don't compromise who God is, where he said he, you know, where he said to worship him, where his name dwells, and how you follow him. The last verse of the chapter says, The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, It is a witness between us that Yahweh is God. A reminder that we both unite and stand under that, even though the Jordan stands between us. So, here's our dilemma that is sort of set up here. In their time, it had to be Shiloh. How does the kingdom of God grow or expand if you can only worship God at Shiloh? If the true place of worship is only organized or centralized in that one place. Later in Israel's history, the country would divide. They would fracture. And there would be one temple in the north, in Samaria, and another temple in the south, in Jerusalem. Two altars. And when Jesus is traveling, he deliberately says, let's go through Samaria, the place where the Jews would never set foot if they could help it. And there he meets a woman, a woman who has had five husbands, is a total outcast, is collecting water at a well in the heat of the day when other women wouldn't be there because she's too shameful to even show her face. And Jesus, a Jew and a man, alone with this woman, actually does what you're not supposed to do, and he talks to her. He bridges this gap. And he offers her living water. She said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one, you are, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You want to offer me living water? I'm an outcast. I'm on this side. You have your crossing over. We have ours. This is our temple. You have yours. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is through the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father not on what side of the Jordan you're on, not in this temple or that temple, 
but in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Problem solved. Jesus would make a way to make the presence of God, the Holy Spirit, released and available to anyone who would repent, turn to him, and call on his name. And then Paul says, when that happens, you become the temple. You become the place where God's name dwells. And that's because Jesus became the altar. Jesus himself became the sacrifice for all of our sins. You see, we are all fractured and broken people who struggle to build shaky identities like the nations after Babel, all on the wrong things, fracturing, polarizing, dividing, hurling stones, and so on. We are all sinners desperately in need of grace and a solution, unity, a unifying place to build our identity and our altar in worship. We have broken the commands to love God, to walk in His ways, to keep His commands, and to worship Him with all of our heart and soul because of our idolatry. We've broken faith. We've turned away from the God of Israel, and we've rebelled against the Lord in our sin and iniquity. Our land is polluted. Every one of us in this room, and if you're in Christ. It's because you've received grace, because you know this. But if you're not, it's because you're still in denial. You're still building an identity on shaky, broken, fracturing things. And you're falling right into the pattern. That pattern can be broken right now. Because Jesus Christ offers you an inheritance and a new identity that all these things that we put our cares in don't matter so much anymore because we have something so much better. And he offers that to you freely. Like Israel, Jesus came and he laid aside, John 13 says, his outer garment, but representing his inheritance, his possession as the Son of God. Like Israel, he set it aside and says, if your land is polluted, if you've done these things, repent. Turn to me. Come to me. Cross over the Jordan, now represented by baptism, and turning in our allegiance and faith to Jesus as the King, and pass over into the Lord's land where the true temple stands. And take for yourself a possession with me. Take an inheritance with me. He offers us that. And that breaks all of our petty affiliations that are dividing our land today. It breaks it because Jesus offers us something deeper, better, an inheritance that can never fade or spoil, as Paul says. So if you want that, if you're sick and tired of being tossed around by this culture and all its lies and narratives, if you want something solid, come to him. 
And if you have come to Jesus, but you find yourself getting tempted to look at the Jordan, that thing that unites us, that we cross over and attach yourself to it a little too much so that you start to depend on false perceptions and you find yourself conforming to the patterns that we see around us, come back to the true altar. Come back to Jesus. Let go of that stuff and worship him serve him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your table today, we hear that offer. Come. Leave that old stuff you're attached to behind and take your possession with me. I offer it freely because I paid the price. You paid for it with your own body and blood. You suffered the drastic effects of our fractured nation's death on a cross, shame and brokenness. And as we hurl stones at one another, trying to shame and break people in order to protect our own fragile identities, God, break us of those things so that we can surrender them and cross over and come to you. God, I pray that you would define us and that it's your name in us that gives us a name so we don't have to make one for ourselves. And we can be at peace and rest in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We want to thank you again for joining us today and let you know that we love you and Jesus loves you. And you always have a place here at ACC. If you made a decision for Christ today, or you just want to talk with someone, please don't hesitate to reach out. We have a really easy contact form you can fill out on our website, or you can call us at 360-293-3729. We would love to talk with you. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.